The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You cause your name to be worshipped, honored, revered in every corner of the earth. Would you bring your kingdom and stretch it from shore to shore, from pole to pole? Would you do your will everywhere here? Do your perfect, full, and righteous will. We pray that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in one sense, we know that it is because as we saw last week, you reign. But in another sense, it isn't because sin still is present. And we ask you, spread your kingdom, stamp it out, deliver. In the meantime, Lord, we pray, give us this day our daily bread. Meet our needs, please. You know them best. We think we know them. And so we ask, but we, over all of it, say you know them best. And so give us today what we need today. Give us in time what we need in time. Deliver us not into temptation, Lord. Forgive us of our sins and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Ultimately, finally, Lord, we pray that you would wipe the earth clean of the evil one and of all of his influence. We ask you to cleanse our own hearts, but we ask you to cleanse this planet as you stretch your kingdom over it. Remove him. And we thank you for a passage today written so long ago that shows us some of these things. In a particular time and place, showing us how it is and how it goes and how it will go. Thank you. And I pray, Lord, for grace now to to hover over me and fill me that my words would be clear. And to hover over this congregation and by your Spirit to press into each one of us that your words that are clear would be heard clearly. That you would be heard. And that you would do the work that needs to be done in each heart, whether it be conviction or comfort. Lord, stir some individuals here who are asleep. Who are asleep and need you. And don't know it or have successfully rejected it and denied it. Stir in them and awaken. Awaken a need. Awaken a concern and show yourself as their only hope. And in others here, Lord, who are hard-pressed, threatened, and fearing, speak comfort, speak hope and joy over them, 
as you show them something of the future that is certain, inevitable, in fact. Do those things and more from this passage today, Lord. Have your way in us, your people. Have your way in those who are not your people yet. Build your church under the name of your King, Jesus. And it is in that name, Jesus the Son, that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to the end of 2 Samuel chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. Last week in the first part of 17, we saw the reign of God over several different aspects of Absalom's rebellion against David, God's chosen king. David is the one set up as king, but Absalom had had plotted a conspiracy, had kicked it off, and had chased David out of Jerusalem. And so David has to flee from the city with, with some soldiers and some families. He flees out into the wilderness to wander again. While Absalom, with his effective counselor Ahithophel, a traitor, came into the city and, by all appearances, Absalom is ascendant. He is, he is triumphant. He is on the rise. He has things going his way. He's in charge. That's what it looks like. But in fact, the Lord reigns, working all things to get done what he wants done. That's what we saw last week. We saw as he had his word fulfilled, the Lord had his word fulfilled, even in Absalom's sins with David's concubines. Absalom chased down David's messengers, but the Lord saved them from his hand. And most importantly, most centrally in the passage, verse 14, where Ahithophel had given counsel as to how to catch David, the Lord had ordained, it says, it's commanded, reigned, to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel. He'd given advice that was good and right and should have been followed, but instead the, the counsel of Hushai, another man that the Lord had specifically worked out so that he was there, Hushai's advice was embraced. He, he spoke, Hushai spoke cleverly, persuasively, appealed to logic, appealed to vanity, appealed to fear. And Absalom and everybody followed him, did what he said, because the Lord reigns to get done what he wants done towards the goal of protecting his kingdom. That's what we saw last week. He defeated the council of Ahithophel so that, the verse continued, he might bring harm upon Absalom. Absalom is doomed. God has decided. We know that as readers, but in, in the story, they, they don't know that. We're told that as an editorial comment, but they still live uncertain. They don't know exactly when. They don't know exactly what. They only know God and his character and his promises that can be trusted. That's just like us as we live <clears throat> pardon me, in the midst of our lives. All we know is God's character. We don't know exactly what he's going to do, exactly when and exactly how. So like them, we are left with, with an assurance from God that I reign and I reign to bring in my kingdom and to plant it securely. Trust me as I do it, though you don't know how. We're right with them, right in that same place. As readers, though, we, we understand some more of the details and know that Absalom is doomed. And so in a very real way, when we come to our passage today, the end of 17 and 18, it's pretty anticlimactic. What happens is what we were told was going to happen. 
the Lord brings harm upon Absalom. So was there ever any doubt? Well, in fact, there was, again, because they are living blind. They only know God's character. They don't know if this battle is going to turn out with Absalom winning or with Absalom losing. But they don't know. They don't know his timing. So we look at this passage again, blind, but again seeing God acting to do exactly what he said he was going to do. Slightly different perspective this morning that looks at judgment falling on Absalom. The eventual, inevitable falling of God's curse on this opposer. And with it, the eventual, inevitable blessing falling on God's people. Those are the two things that we're going to look at today. The eventual and inevitable curse and blessing. Let me read the passage. I'm going to read from chapter 17, verse 24 through 18.18. Then I'll pass back through it to make sure that we understand the details before developing those two points about the cursing and the blessing. 17, verse 24. Then David came to Mahanaim, and Absalom crossed the Jordan with all the men of Israel. Now Absalom had set Amasa over the army instead of Joab. Amasa was the son of a man named Ithra, the Ishmaelite, who had married Abigail, the daughter of Nahash, sister of Zariah, Joab's mother. And Israel and Absalom encamped in the land of Gilead. When David came to Mahanaim, Shobi, the son of Nahash, from Rabbah of the Ammonites, and Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar, and Barzillai, the Gileadite, from Rogalim, brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grains, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd, for David and the people with him to eat. For they said, People are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zariah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, You shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. And the king said to them, Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate, while all the army marched out by hundreds and by thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim, and the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. 
Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great terebinth, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to have given you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, For my sake, protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste my time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained them. And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. The Word of the Lord. The passage begins with a scene change, moving us to the other side of the Jordan River, David having come to Mahanaim and Absalom after him with a large army, now commanded by this man Amasa, and we're given his lineage because he figures later in the story. But Absalom has come with an army, chasing David, and David has come to Mahanaim, this city that had sometime back housed Saul's son Ishbosheth when he was king for a few years. It had welcomed Saul's family, and now the same place welcomes David as he is on the run. So it's an unexpected city that he's in, and then the three men who welcome him are also rather unexpected, not, not people who'd leap to your mind as allies for David, listed in verse 27. One, a Gentile king brother of the king that David fought back in chapter 10. Then there's an Israelite, Machir. He had given refuge to Mephibosheth back in chapter 9. So he's a friend of the house of Saul. You get a Gentile, you get a friend of the house of Saul. And then you have Barzillai, this elderly, wealthy man from Gilead, the region where Absalom's army is currently camped. So there might be some incentive for him to not take sides either. But all three of them do, and they come and they bring provisions that are listed in a way that emphasizes the abundance. Item after item after item after item after item. All different sorts of items, goods and grain and animals, all kinds of stuff. Because they heard the people were in need. Hungry and thirsty in the wilderness, and so they're going to come solve that problem. Before the battle happens, in fact. But the battle does come, chapter 18, and some time has passed here. We're not told how much time, but enough time has passed that that the two sides could rally their armies. Absalom had to call all the army from Israel. David rallied allies. And we get the details of how he lined up the the order of battle. The couple of details that are important, David's not going to battle himself. And then 
this rather odd statement that he makes in verse 5. He tells the commanders in the hearing of all the army, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. Said here, repeated again later in the passage and then later, which we'll see in coming weeks. It's an odd, awkward request. The, the nature of the wording itself is, is personal. He uses the word young man that is sometimes translated boy. Now, Absalom is well into adulthood by now, and he's the king over Israel at the head of a massive army coming to attack them. And, and he essentially says, my boy Absalom, my boy. It's an odd way to describe one in this position. And then the, the wording is made more awkward by the context. For my sake, go easy on him, he says to an army that for his sake is marching out to risk its life on the battlefield against this one that you're asking us to go easy on. That doesn't fit. Who do you care about? For whose sake are you, are you thinking here? You know, we're going out and we're going to die for your sake, but do it you know, gently? It's odd. David says it. They all hear it. And they march out to battle. And verses 6 to 8, the battle is described very quickly, very efficiently. Israel gets slaughtered. David's forces win. It seems as if even the land itself fought on behalf of David. The forest consumed more than the sword did, it says, somehow. But the battle itself is not really the focus. It's, it's pretty quickly done with because the focus is to get on to verse 9 and the many verses that deal with what happened after the battle. Absalom happened by chance, what do you know, to meet the servants of David, verse 9. Hung on a tree as his mule, he's riding a mule as, as a symbol. This is a, a symbolic animal. This is a royal animal. And the symbolism here is so thick. He's hung on a tree as the, the animal of royalty walks off and leaves him hanging there between heaven and earth, somehow stuck in a tree by his head. We're not told how, but it's not surprising given that when we were introduced to Absalom's kingdom thoughts, it was emphasized that he was an extremely handsome man and highly valued his hair. So it's not surprising that somehow his head, maybe even his hair itself, is what does him in. Stuck in a tree. Somehow he's hanging there between heaven and earth when the men come upon him and they don't kill him. For obvious reasons, they'd heard the threat from David. Joab, on the other hand, feels no such confliction and he wastes no time inflicting these three mortal wounds on him, and he falls out of the tree and is hacked to pieces by ten bodyguards. Mission accomplished. Told to us, just very bluntly, isn't a word from Absalom here. He's just someone acted upon, hung in a tree, struck down, killed, and then thrown into a great pit and covered over on top with a very great heap of stones, the text says. Symbolic again. You would look at that and say, there is a condemned man. A symbolic execution by stoning. 
very different type of monument from the one that he had set up for himself in the King's Valley. He'd set up a monument in his own name in the King's Valley because it says that he had no sons to carry on his name, which is a confusing statement because earlier, you might recall back in chapter 14, it said that he had three sons and a daughter. So what do, you, what do we make of this? Probably what, what it means to say is that those sons, because they are never named, died young before this point in his life. The daughter's name, but the sons are not. And he probably set up this pillar in the king's valley after he became king in his 40s or so, probably around 40 years of age. So probably his sons had already died, and he says, I have nothing to carry on my name. He sets up a pillar, a monument to himself, and ironically is buried under another monument, a pile of condemning stones. There ends the rival king. That's it. That's the passage. Obviously, the story continues on, and we'll come back to that later. But pause there with the rival king dead under a pile of stones after being hung in a tree. What do we make of that? Well, I already said, I'm going to elaborate two points. One about eventual inevitable cursing and one about eventual, inevitable blessing. We start with the cursing. Here's the first point. The Lord eventually, inevitably, brings the curse upon all who are against His King. The Lord inevitably brings the curse against all who oppose Him. All who are against David, his chosen king. Last week, as I reiterated at the beginning, last week we looked at the Lord reigning, controlling all events to get done what he wants done. And the emphasis, the perspective from which we looked at that point was from God's assurance, God's promise of securing the kingdom. He upholds his word. He d- delivers his messengers. He hides them in the well, you'll recall. He he gives strength to Hushai's argument to thwart Ahithophel. He's doing all that to secure his kingdom. So we looked at it last week from the perspective of David and the kingdom. And this week, it's a similar point looked at from a different perspective, from the perspective of the enemy, Absalom. We address the reign of God from this perspective and see here a terrible reality. One about which we must be extremely clear and extremely sober-minded, partially for our encouragement. And for some here, I am sure, for your warning and for the calling to you. There is something extremely serious here. The curse, the curse of the wrath of God, real released, awful in all of its holy fury, and sudden in its coming. Absalom comes to this chapter ascendant with a very interesting backstory, all of it going splendidly. Think of what we've seen of him. 
He rages and he plots and he kills and he flees and he gets away with it and he comes back and he's accepted and he schemes and he sets up a revolt and it moves along with tremendous success and he comes into the capital city. He rides high. Everything is going perfectly well for Absalom. All of it done with a high hand, deliberate and flaunting. And all of it done beneath, you have eyes to see it, done beneath an ominous shadow of the law of God. There is success running free, and above it there is You shall have no other gods before me. You shall honor your father and mother. You shall not kill. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. Here's a man running free successfully, and above him stands, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Or, put it another way, You shall not lift up your hand against the Lord and against His anointed. That's God's law. Expressed standard of the one who is the real king. And Absalom will have none of it. Not, not in the outward action, not in the inward heart disposition. He has no remorse and no repentance and no crying out for mercy and no looking to God for atonement for any of this. Just more high-handed flaunting. I will set up a pillar in my own name, just like Saul, to my own glory. And he was getting away with it. Emphasis on the word was. He was getting away with it until he wasn't. This is not, this is not the gradual winding down of a clock. This, this is not the tide of war slowly turning. By 1942, everybody knew Nazi Germany was going to lose except Hitler. Slowly, slowly turning. This is success, failure. Total, absolute, and sudden. It all came crashing down and he was hung on a tree in an unwitting, ironic connection to the legal pronouncement of the law. Cursed is any man hung on a tree and piled under a heap of stones as Israel's other condemned and executed criminals were. No longer high and mighty, but as a man under judgment, condemned, cursed, and executed for his sin, all of a sudden, as was eventually, inevitably coming. God told us so. When did He tell us? But we might be tempted to say, well, very last chapter he told us, verse 14, he's going to bring harm upon Absalom. And that's true, but that's not the most important place he told us because it's very easy for all of us here, very easy for us to skip over this thing. Well, that's Absalom. 
true, it's Absalom. Not me. You're right. That is Absalom. So Absalom, we we know something about Absalom here, but that's not the most important place where God told us the inevitable outcome of Absalom's life. God told us the inevitable outcome in the law, which is about you. In the law where he says, you shall have no other gods before me, and then says, the soul who sins shall die. It was coming to Absalom long before verse 14 of chapter 17. There is something extremely serious to see in that. He knew all along. We we ourselves are the only ones who know verse 14, but he himself knew the law. He had been taught it from, from childhood and knew this is what God says and this is the outcome of it. And he said, never mind old wives' tales and myth. I know what I want and I will get it. Look, I am successful until he isn't. We must be extremely clear about this. Eventually, inevitably, God always inevitably brings the wrath of His fury in judgment on all who oppose His King. Now for most of us here, you need to hear that and you should rejoice that He has done something more to relieve you from that wrath. And and I'm going to come to the blessing part that for most of us should press most deeply into you. But there are some here that I want to reach out and grab you and plead with you to gently shake you and say, wake up! There is a God. There is a law. There is a consequence. It hangs like a cloud over your successful life and promises to bring it all to an end before the God with whom we all must deal. You included. And understand one thing more. The reason I'm saying this right now, the reason God shows this to you right now, is from loving mercy. Because whether I say it or not, it's still true. But the loving mercy is to inform you now while something may be done. We know Absalom, his fate is sealed because we read it. God had decided this. We don't know about you. We don't know about you. We don't know what what tomorrow holds for you or next year holds for you or five years from now holds for you. We don't know. But we do know this is true and it hangs over you and the only hope now is to flee from the wrath to come. Not to reject it and deny it. It's coming. It's coming against you. The hope is to flee from it. To whom? Where? To the God who has acted to provide deliverance to you. This is not theory. This is about you, about your eternity. Your only hope 
and hear it in this merciful warning to you. Oh, there's something of, of the character of God even in David's confusion here. As we'll see in the coming weeks, David is not right to talk to his soldiers like this about Absalom. He undercuts them and destroys the morale. It's, it's, it's not right. But you know where it comes from? It comes from a heart that will forever see him as my boy. Yeah, he murdered my son and just did all that to my concubines. And if he was here now, he'd cut my head off. But he's my boy. And I wish, I wish, I wish I could deal gently with him. Joab, understanding God's decision here, even if he doesn't know it, says, that ain't going to happen. But do you see the heart that's in David in that? I mean, uh, I wish it could. We, we'll read Psalm 3 in a, in a short while here. And in Psalm 3, David knows he breaks the teeth of the wicked. David knows the justice of God. But he, oh, he's my boy. There's some tension there in the heart of David that is also a tension in the heart of God who says, here's my law, here's the consequence. I do really, in, in, an, in an honest-to-goodness sincere way, love you and care about you. But hear this, hear this. I love you and I care for you, which is why I'm telling you this. I love my own glory and righteousness more. And I will not compromise that to give you a pass on denigrating it. God Himself is no sinner. God Himself has His own glory first. And will pour out wrath on all who denigrate it. Or will pour out wrath on His Son for those who denigrate it but give themselves to the King. That's your only hope. And He lays it in front of you in a genuine plea from a genuine love. My boy, my daughter, do not think for one moment that means I will not be just but my goodness, if there would be a way to deal gently with you. And here it is, by the mercy and wisdom and power of God, the cross. That's your only hope. I, I, I look at most of you, and I know most, I don't know all of you, but I know most of you, and I, and I know where you stand with Christ, but I don't know where some of you stand. And some of you I don't know at all. So I plead with you, the church, whether you're here first, first time or here every week, I plead with you, the church, flee the wrath to come and be reconciled to God. Eventually, inevitably, He does what He says He would do in His law and He pours out the curse of His wrath on all who oppose Him. You must come. Bless God that He's provided a way for you to come. Has provided mercy for you. Bless God for His goodness, for His grace, for His love. And don't doubt His justice.
eventually, inevitably, he pours out the curse on all who oppose him. And also, secondly, eventually, inevitably, he brings blessing upon his king and those who are with him. The Lord eventually, inevitably, brings blessing upon his king and those who are with him. So the first one is, is sobering and serious, and this is, this is where there is light and, and glorious, hopeful promise. We see this blessing show up in, in two places here. First, the obvious blessing that is showered upon David and all those who are with him at the end of chapter 17. It's a cornucopia provision there. Everything they could need told to us in a way to emphasize the abundance of it. Goods and food and foodstuffs and animals, and it comes at just the right time. Notice the text says that the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. That's what drove them to respond. But that's the condition that the people are in, and it's at that moment, not before, when they are hungry and thirsty and weary in the wilderness, at that moment, God, through these unlikely allies, pours out what they need, the blessing that they need. So the first thing we need to see here is, is the assurance of, I'm talking very tangible, material, concrete stuff you need. This is what God is like. He looks upon His people and knows what you need and knows how much of it you need and exactly when you need it. Now, it might be different from you know, what we think we need and when we think we need it. But at just the right time, He will provide what you need. As He fed the first son, Israel, in the wilderness, day by day with manna from heaven, Never giving too much, but always giving just enough to keep them trusting Him. And as He fed the real and final Son in the wilderness, after 40 days of hungering, He feeds His people. It's the kind of King that He is. You can pray, give me my daily bread. And His answer is, of course, I am a good Father. I know how to do that. I will not return to you a stone or a snake, but I'll give you what you really need. That's who he is. Eventually and inevitably, he pours out on his people blessing. Real, tangible, concrete. I'm talking about the health that you need to get done what he wants you to get done. The money that you need to get done what he wants you to get done. Really, trust him with that. But more than just that, the main blessing that God eventually, inevitably brings to his king and those with him is witnessed in this main event here, the killing of Absalom. Absalom himself, obviously, is not real relevant to us. A long time ago, he himself is no real threat to me or to you. 
But what Absalom is, what Absalom represents, is important for us not to miss. Absalom is a model, a type here in this passage. He resembles Saul and, in fact, resembles as a model for all rulers, authorities, kings who would be against the Lord's king. All great leaders, all small-time authorities, all individuals, and particularly all spiritual powers, including the great rival to the throne, the other would-be king, the prince of this world, stands condemned. Christian, think about that. Why did Jesus tell us, pray like this? Not meaning pray these words rotely, but pray these sorts of things. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, lead us not to temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. He would not have said that if it was not relevant. Now, commonly we talk about our sin struggles arise, they come to us from different avenues. And commonly, theologically, they come to us from the world around us, from our own sinful fallen selves, and from Satan. So in one sense, that's only a third of the problem. But in another sense, Ephesians 2 talks about how This prince of this world is at work in all of the sons of disobedience, leading them all to follow his ways. So in another very real sense, he's not just a third of the problem, he is the problem. Oh, deliver us from the evil one. I will. I have delivered you even now. He has delivered you even now that this one has no dominion over you, but He will deliver you from the very presence of this evil one and cast Him into a pit, not just for a thousand years, forever and ever and ever and ever, sealed over and done. And there will be no more rebellion. And there will be no instigator. There will be no deceiver, no plotter, no murderer, no father of lies. Gone forever. Jesus said, pray, Father, deliver us from the evil one because we need Him removed for our good, for our joy. And He will do it. Eventually, inevitably, He will do that. Finally, and fully. And glory. What that means for you right now is that you can pray Psalm 3. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 3. I know I've only got a minute here, but I want you to to look at Psalm 3. And understand, Psalm 3 is hope in the middle of trouble. It's hope that looks ahead to deliverance from the evil all around and from the evil one. It is not written in the context of present deliverance. O Lord, how many are my foes? Not were, are. See the little heading there? Seemingly written by David when he fled from Absalom, his son. We don't know exactly when, but that's the title put on it. 
O Lord, how many are my foes, many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. When that is your reality. This is David's psalm, this is the son of David's psalm, and this is the people of the son of David's psalm. This is yours. When that is your reality, verse 3, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and He answered me from His holy hill. In the midst of trouble, You are the shield all about me. In the midst of trouble, You are the shield all about me. I cry out to You and then verse 5, I lay down and go to sleep. I lay down and slept, and I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. I will not be afraid. Though they're still around, and there are lots of them. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Eventually, inevitably, His blessing falls on you, the people who are with the King. So Psalm 3 gives you great hope. Not by removing the trouble, but in the middle of the trouble. While surrounded all around by enemies, you have a shield. This is who God is for you, Christian. He is the God who certainly pours out the curse and certainly pours out the blessing. If you are in Christ, hope in that and rejoice in that. And if you are not in Christ, come. Let me pray. Lord, would you please build your people? And would you call more into your people? Would you assure them of your eventual total deliverance of us from the evil one? And of your present tense sustaining deliverance of us from the evil one and all of those who follow Him. Lord, give hope to us, Your people, and save today. Thank You, Lord, for being good. Thank You for being God. Thank You for sending Christ. Build Your church, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address 
is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.